this morning, we begin a new sermon series on the book of Ruth. We just finished up a, a sermon series on prayer in which we were going through the Lord's Prayer and, and looking to how the Lord's Prayer guides us. It's an outline for our own prayers. And now we begin a, a new book of the Bible. We have done these short series this summer. It was uh, evangelism and then prayer, and now we're going to get back into a book, and it's the book of Ruth. Now, on the surface level of things, the book of Ruth tells the story about a struggling family focusing mainly on two of the women in this family, a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law who face great personal loss, tragedy, and a man who is one of their relatives who provides them with hope and redemption. But the book of Ruth, like every other book of the Bible, is really about much more than human stories, as powerful as they might be. It's ultimately a book about the God of the Bible, the God who gave us the scriptures, who ultimately is the author of the Bible. This book, like all books of the Bible, reveal to us who God is, what God is doing in the world, how he works in the world for his own glory and for the good of his people. Therefore, if we look closer and we dig deeper into the book of Ruth, and we keep the main storyline of the Bible in mind, the book of Ruth will end up pointing us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who even in the midst of tragedy and sorrow is our real and everlasting hope and the true redeemer of all who trust in Christ, trust in him. So for this reason, as we make our way through the book of Ruth, while considering the context, what was going on at that time in the original intent of the author, we're going to see this story in light of the story that holds the entire Bible together, and that is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. So we're going to remember who the entire Bible is really all about. It's all about Christ. We'll be looking for ways that this little Old Testament book teaches us about our big and glorious Savior. Now sometimes we'll be reminded of Christ's greatness as we consider the loyalty, the faithfulness, the the relationship, the love that exists between some of the characters in the book of Ruth. Other times we'll, we'll see our need for a Savior as we look at their sin and we, we see them in, in, in hopeless situations. We'll also be reminded of, of Christ and, and pointed to him through different themes that come out in the book of Ruth, different truths that, that were taught that will cause us to see and to savor Christ. As we make our way through this book, we're going to read it as Christians, remembering the end of the story while we make our way through something that happens more towards the beginning of the story, or in some sense the beginning. One of the unique contributions that Ruth provides to the scriptures, to the canon, is that it helps us better understand God's mysterious providence. That is how God works in and through human actions to accomplish his purposes, specifically the redemption of his people. So we're in some sense given this this sneak peek behind the mysterious will of God and how he works in the world, and we're given an insight into the providence of God in the book of Ruth. So with these things in mind, something like our, our hermeneutic for the book of Ruth, that is how we're going to be studying the book of Ruth and what we're looking for, I ask you to turn to Ruth 1, verses 1 through 7, and it can be found on page 222 in the Pew Bible below the sanctuary seats. Ruth 1, 1 through 7, page 222 in the Pew Bibles. This is God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. 
and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. This is God's holy and perfect word. May we read it, believe it, and obey it as the people of God. Church, there's going to be a lot of eating today, a lot of meals First of all, there's, there's going to be the, the picnic with the purpose that might turn into a picnic with a purpose inside of a building if the weather doesn't hold off. Uh, so we're going to be feasting, physically feasting on some food together. That's, that's great. I love eating together. Christian fellowship around some food is, is, is a sweet gift. There's also going to be the Lord's Supper. So by faith, we're going to feast on the Lord. We're going to take the bread and the cup, which draws us to the cross as we remember that Christ's body was broken and shed for us. And we're given the bread and the cup to remind us to take us to the cross and remember and rejoice and to celebrate together what God has done in redeeming us, his people, and bringing us together, rejoicing in the gospel by feasting on the Lord's Supper. And now we're going to feast on God's word. That is, when we read God's word as Christians, we're not coming to, to merely read a book and gain some insight. Yes, we need that. We need to understand what's, what's being taught us, what we're being told. We need to get the, the story. But the goal is not just to, to keep it here, but to move it down by God's spirit into our hearts and, and even into our bellies. We need to digest God's word. So, so if you're tracking with me this morning, we're doing a lot of eating physically and spiritually. And we need God's help to do all of this. All of the eating that's going to go on, we, we need his help. So let's pray that God would help us digest God's word together. God, we thank you for all that's going on this morning in this church. Uh, not just the, the eating that will happen and is happening, but but the teaching of God's word in the Sunday school classrooms as little ones who you have blessed us with, and it, whether it's uh, being an aunt or an uncle to a little one that we bring to church or parents or, or uh, grandparents and bringing them here, they're in this place hearing the good news. We pray that you would bless our Sunday school teachers with wisdom and, and, and understanding and, and that they would apply your word and, and specifically the gospel to the situations, the, the lives of the little ones who are hearing your truth throughout this building. Father, we thank you for those who labor in Sunday school classrooms and we pray that you would bless their efforts and, and that many children would come to know, hear and know the good news and believe it as they hear the good news from Sunday school teachers. Father, there are so many things going on uh, in, a, in a church this size. There are people that are grieving, that are struggling, that are mourning, that are, are, that are overwhelmed with different situations, whether it be physical, spiritual, or emotional. They're, they're struggling. Father, may you nourish them by your word, by the truth that is found that you have given to us in your word. May your word 
sink down deep into their hearts and, and fill their hearts with truth, reminding them of your promises, drawing them to Christ, drawing us all to Christ. Father, for those that are rejoicing, that might be distracted to think of other things and, and to, to find comfort and, and even escape in, in the things of this world, Father, feed them what they need. They, they may not want to. They may have come here out of obligation, but Father, change their hearts and, and show them your glory in Christ and, and help them to feast on, on, on Christ, the, the good news of the gospel today. Father, we're a people desperately in need all of the time, even when we don't recognize it. So wherever each person is at, I pray that you, our Father in heaven, who knows what we all need, that, that even for those who have come here far from you, who, who are not trusting Christ, will be drawn to Christ, drawn to the light, and experience your goodness and your mercy. Father, we pray this all for your glory, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, until yesterday, I had planned on preaching to verse 19. But as I continued to work on the sermon and write the sermon, I decided that it would be far better for, for me to cover less ground this morning because the first few verses of Ruth provide us with important details that are full of theological significance. And if we, we understand what's going on in these first few verses, we are going to be well prepared for the rest of the book of Ruth as we make our way these next few weeks through the book. So I don't want to rush over these things. And I also want to spend some more time looking at Ruth's conversion next week. So, so I decided to kind of pull back. I, I often shoot too high, and then I pull back a little bit. And, and thankfully, it's, it's not going to change anything because we're going to keep the same thing. So next week, the plan is to cover verses 8 through 22. That's a big chunk of scripture. But with the Lord's help and, and some discipline, I think I'll be able to do it. Well, in verse 1, we learn that the events recorded in Ruth happened in the days when the judges ruled. The days when the judges ruled. And that puts the story somewhere between 1250 B.C. and 1050 B.C. during the years after Joshua died and before Saul was made Israel's king. A time when God raised up various Israelite leaders called judges to lead his people. One of the most well-known being somebody I think that many of you have heard of, if not all of us, a man named Samson, the long-haired, strong man with a reputation for being far from godly, but yet God used him uh, in, in the life of his people. It was a time in Israel's history that might be compared to the Wild West in American history. It was marked by lawlessness, lots of sin, apostasy, idolatry among God's people. The book of Judges gives us a good sense of this as well as the, uh, the spiritual temperature of those days. We're given a sad but, but very clear and helpful summary of what it was like in the days when the judges ruled. In Judges 17 and 6 and Judges 21 25, we read the same thing. And this is, this is what was going on in those days. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And again, Judges 21 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're also told in Ruth 1.1 that at this time, there was a famine in the land. This is another one of those important details with theological significance that sets the stage for the rest of the book. We need to see what's going on here. Now, part of the, the covenant blessings that God promised to Israel when he covenanted with them in, the, in, in the him bringing them out of, of slavery in Egypt, when he rescued them out of slavery, 
is this, that he would bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey where he would bless them. That's part of the covenant blessings. Exodus 3.8, a land flowing with milk and honey where he would bless them. But yet at this specific time, as was often the case during the time of the judges and other times, the land was not producing bountifully. There was little to no milk, honey, or bread for God's people to eat. They were on the verge of death by starvation. But why? If God had promised these blessings, why were they experiencing the famine? The reason for the famine was not that God had broken his side of the covenant with Israel. This famine was a result of Israel having again broken their side of the covenant with God. Yes, great and amazing blessings would come to God's people if they were faithful to God, if they kept the covenant that they had made with the Lord, but great curses or judgments, consequences would come if Israel was unfaithful to God and broke the covenant that they had made with the Lord. God commanded Moses to lay out these blessings and curses before Israel in detail. We find them in many places, but but we find them maybe most thoroughly unpacked for us in a passage like Deuteronomy 28. Here's a sampling of, of just some of the blessings and curses. And I want you to notice how many of these blessings and curses are directly tied to the land. It might be through the livestock, which relied on the land. It might be through the mention of bread or, or kneading bowls. But so many of the blessings are tied to the land. Here's, here's a sampling. First, some of the covenant blessings. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 8. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. I want to stop right there. You get this picture of these of these overflowing blessings coming from the Lord to his people. Much like the, the, the reality that we Christians experience this side of the cross. Not only are we saved, but the Lord continues to bless us with all of these blessings. Yes, there are difficulties. Yes, there are trials and struggles and things that that we might put in the the curse category. But, But as we contemplate the unending mercy and grace of God for those who are in Christ, it's amazing. And here's this picture of, of God pouring out, overtaking the Israelites with his blessings. I love it. They're just amazed that they, they wouldn't help be able to help themselves and say, Wow. God, you are an awesome, gracious, loving God in light of these blessings. We pick up in verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, which would certainly include farming and the harvest. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now look at some of the covenant curses. Basically, they're an undoing of the blessing. They're the opposite of the blessings. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. 
Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So you see the physical famine that we're told about in Ruth 1.1 was the result of the spiritual famine among God's people. Israel had again broken the covenant they had made with the Lord. And this famine was part of the covenant curses. This was not just some, some natural disaster. It was a consequence of Israel's sin. Now, this is not always the case. Sometimes we experience suffering and sorrow because we live in a fallen world, but in the context of the covenant, in the context of this situation, it was a direct result of their sin. And God was at this time disciplining his covenant people, not with the goal of vengeance, not to destroy them, but to bring them, to bring about justice, to uphold his word, and to open the eyes of his people so that they would see their need for him. This is what a loving father does. The author of Hebrews reminds us of that. Earthly fathers who love their children discipline their children. It's an act of love to lead them out of their sin to the way of life. It's, it's, an, it's a means by which an earthly father protects and guides and directs their children so that they would follow the, the Lord if they're a Christian earthly father. And that is to mirror, that is to, to parallel the, the, the way that our heavenly Father cares for us, his children. He disciplines us, not out of vengeance, but to lead us back to him so that we would see our need for him. God was bringing at this time the nation of Israel to a place of repentance so that they would cry out to him, return to him, and experience the blessings of the covenant. First and foremost, which was this, they were in fellowship with the living triune God of the Bible. That's the greatest blessing of the covenant, whether it's the old covenant or the new covenant. We get God in the covenant. We get to be in fellowship. We get to worship. We get to treasure. We get to know the living, triune, saving, gracious, merciful, holy God. And at this time, Israel had turned their back on, on God. And God was disciplining them to bring them back. This cycle of God's people wandering from him and then God disciplining them and then a remnant of Israel repenting and turning back to the Lord is repeated not just through the book of Judges but throughout the Old Testament. And ultimately it, it leads to this reality, we need a better covenant. We need something more because we cannot, no matter how far low the bar is set, we can't keep it. We need a Savior and that Savior is Jesus Christ. So we're in that, that, that time in, in biblical history as we, we look through and study through the book of Ruth where that's being made clear. God's people will continue to wander. They need a true and better covenant. They need a Savior. They need a true and final Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, during this specific nationwide judgment by famine, we're told that a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. In verse 2, we're, we're given the names of this traveling family of four. The man's name is Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi, and their two boys are named Malon and Kilion. They were an Israelite family, and like every Israelite family, they had a lineage, an ancestry that they could trace. And this family's ancestry is traced to the clan of the Ephrites, 
Ephrathites. Sorry, that's a, that's a diff- I'm glad I'm not part of that clan. Maybe I would know that, how to say that word a little bit better. Uh, but, but they were of this tribe, a, a tribe within, or a clan that was within the tribe of Judah. And they lived in the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And that right there, the town of Bethlehem, should perk up the Christian's interest or anybody that's read the Bible that knows the Christmas story. Bethlehem, that's a place of significance, a small little town that becomes very, very important, not just in biblical history, but in world history, in God's story and what he's doing to bring about redemption. Now, it's possible that someone might read through these verses and think that Elimelech made a difficult but logical and right call. There was, after all, a famine where he and his family were living, and there, there wasn't a famine in Moab. So to save himself and his family from possible death by starvation, he leads them out of death and into safety, or relative safety, in a different land. You might even say that was a harder thing to do. He, he, left, he left all those relationships, all that history there, and he went to a place in order to save his family. Now this view would be an understandable one, Because in some cases, immigration is the right, the best, or even the only option. No matter what your political leanings are, if you've read about, if you've heard about, if you've watched any of the stories about the Syrian refugees who are leaving Syria in this war-torn country, I, I, I think most of us, if not all of us, would say they're making the right call. They're making the only call. I mean, we're constantly concerned about the threat of a bomb being purposefully or accidentally dropped on your home, on your apartment complex. The, the possibility that, that though you might live in an area that is at that time safe, that is under one of the, the ruling uh, group's control and has some relative safety, that any, at any moment there could be a, a, a change in power and, and that new group sees you as a traitor and becomes like a terrorist and they torture and they, they brutalize you and your family. That, that's an ongoing threat for those who live in Syria. Even just the, the possibility that, a, that a, a random gunfight causes a, a stray bullet to go through your wall and, and kill you or, or one of your family members, your, one of your children. And most of us, I think, would say that they're making the right call. It's not an easy call because they're taking their clothes that they're wearing, a backpack, and whatever else they can, they can take with them. A lot of times it's nothing because they're carrying a child or two or three babies. You see these, these families going on these, these unsafe boats and traveling you know, miles through the sea in order to just hopefully land safely and begin to go to a place where they don't speak the language. I mean, that's, that's a right immigration. If it weren't for the covenant that God made with Israel, it's possible that a strong argument could be made that Elimelech's immigration would fit in that same category. After all, he seems to be going where there's more food. But in light of God's word, his covenant promises, there's no possibility for that argument because Elimelech's decision to leave the promised land for Moab was full of sin. It wasn't just one sin that led him to Moab. It was full of sin, this decision. And here's why. Elimelech had a choice to make between two options. Option number one, we'll call it the faith-filled option is that he could have decided to keep his family within the covenant people of God in the land that God had promised and provided for him and and all the Israelites, keep his family there, and instead of trying to lead his family physically to a place where there was more food, he could have focused on leading his family spiritually to the God who can and had over and over again provided miraculously for his people with bread from heaven. You think about the manna. Yes, 
uh, bread from heaven, manna, you know, this, this light substance that had a, a flavor like honey, probably would have gotten a little bit old after 40 years. I get that. But it was amazing. God was providing for his people with a miracle food that, that all they had to do is go out and collect and eat every day. And it was there every day. There's a history of God providing for his people in, in times of, of great need. Not only that, think about the water that came from the rock. Moses struck the rock and water burst forth in order to save God's people and supply them with the water that they needed. Think about the quail that God provided, giving them more meat than they could have ever eaten. To lead his family spiritually would have meant that Elimelech would have mourned his own sin, his family's sin, and the nation's sin, which had brought about the famine. He would have demonstrated true repentance, sought the Lord's forgiveness publicly, crying out, putting on sackcloth, saying, you know why this is here, family? You know why this famine is here? Because we as a nation have turned from the Lord. As the covenant people of God, we've turned our back on the Lord and his covenant. This is what's going on. He would have remembered God's mercy and reminded his family, as any good Israelite, faithful Israelite should have done, of God's covenant promises and told his family to join him in trusting the Lord that he would provide. That God would give them all what he needed, what they needed physically, supplying the food that they needed to survive. And all within the, the physical and, and spiritual boundaries that God had set for him, this would not have been a, a man full of wishful thinking if he would have chosen this option, but a man taking God at his word. For within the covenant, there was the promise that those who, who sin but return to the Lord would be forgiven. They would, they would be restored and again experience God's compassion and his blessing. So it was built into the covenant. Any, any Israelite would have known that. But sadly, Elimelech didn't take this option. He took option number two. We'll call it the faithless option. This option involved Elimelech voluntarily leading his family into exile, away from the covenant people of God, out of the land that God had promised and given to Israel and to his family, away from the worship of God, and into Moab, a foreign land that was far from a safe place for an Israelite to travel, much less live in. This was not a mission trip to spread the good news of, of the gospel. This was a man abandoning God's promises in the covenant in order to go his own way. One commentator summarizes the situation in Moab well, writing, Moab was known for several things, none of them good. The Moabites had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. Their king Balak had hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt their women had been a stumbling block to Israel in the wilderness, seducing them to worship false gods, and they had recently oppressed the Israelites in the days of Elon. Does this sound like the place to go to in order to raise a godly family? See, rather than trust in the Lord, be the spiritual leader that God calls husbands and fathers to be, Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king, decided to be his own king and to do what was right in his own eyes. He went with the culture. He went with the spiritual temperature that was, was true of the people, the Israelites of the day, to do whatever was right in his own eyes. And for him, that meant going to Moab. Friend, Christian, which option are you going with? Which option have you really been taking lately or maybe for your whole life if you're not a Christian? Are you going with option one, the, the faith-filled option? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? 
to save you, sustain you, and strengthen you as God promises he will, even when it's hard, because it's going to be hard. The Christian life is not an easy life, and yet God calls us to trust in him, to to look to him, to obey his word, even when it gets hard. That's the faith-filled option. Are you going to the Bible for direction? Or are you going to Dr. Phil and, and Oprah and the ways of the world and looking at what they have to say, not in light of Scripture, but in light of the culture and making compromises? The faithful option means that you're seeking to live with God and according to God's word in such a way that brings him honor and glory. Or are you going with option two, the faithless option that puts you in control, makes you your own king or queen and the captain of your ship. And if you're steering the ship, here's what's going to happen. You're going to steer yourself away from the safety of Jesus Christ. You will. Because outside of submitting to God's will for your life, outside of obeying the scriptures, you're going to wander from Christ. And he is the only safety that God provides for his people. You're going to try to take the safest the shortest or what you think is the best route for you to reach your goals and get whatever you want, even if it requires you to compromise, to give in, to succumb to temptation and sin. In his commentary on Ruth, pastor and professor Ian Duguid writes, Many bear the label Christian, yet their Christianity has no real impact on life-defining decisions. Just as Elimelech bore the name, my God is king, yet lived in a way that made it evident that God wasn't his king at all, the roads we choose for ourselves often make our deepest heart commitments plain for all to see. And that's what was going on with Elimelech and his family. Naomi went with them. We don't know of any case where she argued this was not a good call. We need to stay and trust the Lord. Christian, Are you truly trusting in the Lord? (laughs) Submitting to his will and following the Lord wherever he takes you? Friends, like Elimelech, we also have two options. We can trust in the Lord and obey his word, or we can trust in ourselves and follow the world. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 commends the first option to us. If Elimelech would have just been given this counsel and, and taken it, And as we read this passage with the gospel in mind, as we read it as Christians, oh, it's so good. We need to be reminded of of this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Elimelech, like so many of us so often, was looking for refreshment outside of the plan of God, the provision of God, the covenant that God had made with his people. There's no refreshment there. There's no peace there. There's no safety there. There's no joy, even as tempting as it might be. Don't go that way. Trust in the Lord. But Elimelech chose the second option, and at first it seems that despite his sin, things are going relatively well for him and this family of four. Verse 2 informs us that Elimelech and his family survived the the trip, which would have been a dangerous trip that would have taken them around the Dead Sea and into their new place of residence, the country of Moab, probably about 100 miles or so. But this is when the book of Ruth takes a sad and tragic turn. Sometime, we don't know how long after, after arriving in Moab, 
Elimelech, this leader of the family, dies, making Naomi a widow and leaving their two boys without a father. But things seem to be getting better again. The boys grow into men, and each marries a Moabite woman. Malon marries Ruth. We learn this from Ruth 4.10. And Kilion marries Orpah, an act that, that again shows just how much this family has assimilated into the pagan culture that they were living in. This, was, this would not have been a good thing for an Israelite to do in this time and at this time in the Old Covenant. It would have been a, a compromise. It would have been them not doing what God had commanded his people to do. Remember, there's no place for the Jew to worship God while they stay in Moab, and they're setting up shop, long-term plans here. There, there's no temple. There's, there's no tabernacle. There's, there's only false worship. In fact, the Moabites' worship involved the gods of nature, one of which was the god of fertility, a, a god that was worshipped through ritual prostitution. So the faithful Moabite would go to the temple with money, pay the money, and then sleep with a prostitute and say, I just worshipped my god. At this point, this family is drifting further and further and further from the Lord. Verse 4 goes on to tell us that 10 years later, Naomi is still in Moab. They were, they were on a short trip just to, to make it through the, the famine. And here, 10 years later, they're still in Moab. What a great illustration of how it works when we disobey God. We don't play, plan to go our own way for long, do we? It's just one little compromise a person says, I'll just skip church and sleep in this Sunday, and then it becomes every other Sunday. Soon it's most Sundays, and then it's every Sunday. A person tells themselves that they'll sin just this once. They'll compromise. They'll give in to the flesh. You know, I'm lonely. I'm sad. I'm frustrated. I'm feeling distant from God, and here's this possibility of some temporary joy outside of God's will, and I'll give in just this once, but then I'll change. I'll go back. I'll repent. But then before they know it, it's 10 years later and they're stuck in the same place, struggling with the same sin. Lost in spiritual apathy, they've committed the sin over and over and over again so many times that their heart is hard to the things of God. They're caught up in worldliness. Praise God for the gospel. That even after 10 years or 15 or 20 years, if you're here right now and you've wandered from the Lord, but he's brought you by his providential grace to this place to hear the good news, you can and you will be forgiven if you trust in the Lord but still there will be consequences, heartache and sorrow because of your sin. But the gospel is true. No matter how many years you've wandered from Christ, you will be forgiven and restored to God. And your promise is this, that you will be forgiven just as much as the one who did not wander. And yet there are real consequences for us and for others when we sin. In the words of my, my third son, so we have four sons, my third son, who's three and a half, almost, actually he's, Three and three quarters, I should say. This is what he tells his brothers, especially in the car when they're having what I would call a tantrum. In the words of Simeon Dufek, it's not worth it. It's, it's not worth it. Church, sin is not worth it. Going our own way is not worth it. It will lead to much more than a tantrum in the car. It will lead to your heartache, to sorrow, to destruction, to broken relationships, to to you feeling the, the effects of, of following not the Lord, but the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's brutal. God's way is the better way, even when it's the harder way. And wandering from Christ, trusting in yourself, will only lead, lead you away from true joy in Jesus. And it will lead you into sorrow, to trouble, towards destruction. 
Elimelech believed the lie that there was salvation outside of the Lord. You might say, well, he's just going there. It's physical protection that he was seeking. But you have to understand that they were tied together. You leave the covenant people. You leave the promised land as an Israelite willingly. You're trusting not in the Lord's plan. You're trusting in your own plan. And that's what he was doing here. This is the spiritual history. This is the setting. This is the the, the temperature of, of their relationship with God in the setting of Ruth. He believed, Elimelech did, that by disobeying God's word, he would be saved. We do the same thing if we trust in anyone but Jesus Christ who died to atone for our sins and was raised from the dead to bring us life. There is no salvation outside of Christ. There's no hope outside of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's no shortcut around the cross. There's no easier way. You must humble yourself, repent of your sin, and trust in the Lord's provision. The Lord's way is Jesus. No other way. Elimelech didn't trust in the Lord. We must learn from his mistakes and our own and others' mistakes that it will do us no good. We must trust in the Lord. Well, after those 10 years in Moab, Naomi faced another personal tragedy, maybe even a worse one. Verse 5 tells us that both her sons, Malon and Kilion, die. Naomi seems like a woman who has been cursed by God. She left Bethlehem, married with two sons, but is now a childless widow in a foreign land. Only those who faced similar trials, losses, know the types of thoughts that, that likely invaded Naomi's head. The things that kept her up late at night, that prevented her from sleeping and finding any sense of rest. The deep sorrows that, that she felt in her soul that wouldn't go away. Her heart was broken and she must have felt hopeless and lost in grief. The reality is that so many people turn their back on God in such situations. They completely turn away from the Lord. They refuse to believe that a good and loving holy God would allow them to experience the pain and heartache that they're going through. Without diminishing Naomi's pain or the pain of others who have experienced great loss, heartache, our God knows the same pain. He's not a distant God, unconnected, disconnected from the world, the clockmaker who sets it and leaves it to just watch and see what happens. He's not playing Sims. He's involved. He sent his son knowingly to come to earth, to take on flesh. God the Son took on human flesh, became truly human, though he always was and remained truly God. Knowingly, God the Father sent him so that he would be rejected, beaten, mocked, and then murdered on a cross so that we would be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. Our God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit know this experience. It doesn't make our experience of loss and heartache go away, but it does remind us that our God is not a distant, unrelatable God, but a near God, a God who is close and, 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 and there in our times of trouble, a God who has experienced things that we have experienced, even the worst things that we can experience. But Naomi didn't live on this side of the cross like we do. She didn't know the end of the story and still, while in Moab, she heard that the Lord had provided for his people in her homeland, that the covenant blessings had returned. Maybe a, a merchant that had made, made his way through Bethlehem and come to Moab, had come to Moab started spreading you know, the, this news. Watch out. Israel's back again. They've returned to their God. 
and the blessings have come back. It's bountiful there. It's amazing what God is doing, their God is doing in that land. Well, however she heard about this news, rather than stay in that field and curse the God who, who some would say had cursed her, rather than say, you know what, forget him, forget Yahweh, forget the Lord, I'm going to become a Moabite. I'm going to embrace their gods. Rather than do all that, in verses 6 and 7, we read that Naomi returns from the country of Moab with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, with plans to return to the land of Judah to go to Bethlehem. This word return is used in the Old Testament to describe not just physical return from one place to another, but to describe repentance, And that's what Naomi does here. She doesn't simply set out to physically return to Israel. The Lord, though we don't see this directly here, we'll see it in future weeks as we make our way through this book, the Lord opens Naomi's heart and draws her not just back to his people, not just back to the promised land, but God draws Naomi to himself. This is her conversion. This is what true repentance will look like. What is referred to in Acts eleven eighteen as repentance that leads to life. Real repentance will bring about real change. It involves recognizing our sin, our disobedience, and that we deserve condemnation. But true repentance will also always involve faith, lead to saving faith. Trusting in the covenant-keeping God and his good news that he has provided food for us. For Naomi, it was food in Bethlehem. Again, there would be bread in the house of bread. This is the very same place, Bethlehem, in which the long-promised Messiah, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would be born. You see, in this way, the book of Ruth points us to the bread that God would later provide in Bethlehem, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who provides what we wayward, lost, and wicked exiles need the most. We need his grace. We need forgiveness. We need to be reconciled to God. And God has provided the means by which that happens in the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And that bread of life was born, was brought into this world, physically took on flesh in Bethlehem, the same place that Naomi was returning to. Naomi left Bethlehem as what some would today call a nominal Christian. That is someone who's a Christian in name only. Someone who was maybe raised in in a Christian home for her, an Israelite setting, an Israelite family, but was not truly trusting in the Lord. But as we will see, she returns to Bethlehem as a true believer, a woman who trusts in the Lord. Her return to the Lord, really her conversion, doesn't take away her pain and the sorrow that she feels over the death of her husband and her sons. But it does remind us that God is at work even in, people's, in, even in his people's darkest and most painful moments. Often we don't see it until much later. Sometimes we don't see it this side of heaven. But God is at work. What a great reality. What a great gift God has given us in the book of Ruth as we're, we're able to see behind the, the curtain and God's providential kindness and, and love for his people. He uses our sorrow. He even uses situations in which we're disobedient and we turn away from him, our own sin, to lead us to Jesus. In the coming weeks, we'll see this more and more and may it draw our hearts to Christ, causing us to stay fixed on him who is our hope and redeemer. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, visitors who are not yet trusting in Christ, this book is about Jesus. It's about the God who sent his son so that we would have hope and redemption. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. (laughs) And we regret the reality, we mourn sometimes the reality that, that we do not find it as precious as we should. We do not go to your word first like we, your people, should to hear from our Heavenly Father. Oftentimes we go to ourselves and to others. But we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for this book, the book of Ruth, that helps us to see that even in our darkest, our most brutal, our, our suffering moments, when tragedy is upon us and, and, and we're lost in grief, you draw near to your people. Even to those that are not yet your people, you use these things to draw us out of darkness and into your marvelous light so that we would proclaim the excellencies of, of you who called us to himself. Father, I pray for those who are lost still, who don't see the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ, who are not trusting in you, but trusting in someone or something else. Bring them out of their own Moab to the covenant people, to the promised one, into your kingdom, all through your son, Jesus Christ, our hope and redeemer. Father, help us as a church to grow in grace, to, to, to extend grace and to love each other more and better as Christ calls us to do. And help us to apply this book, these passages, these truths this week and every week as we gather to proclaim your name and to worship you, the God who saves. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.